Welcome back to another episode of Environmental Voices, the Penn Future podcast. My name is Travis DiNicola, Penn Future's Director of Development, and I'm your host. Environmental Voices is sponsored by Invinity, designing and installing solar power systems for homes and businesses in Central and Western PA since 2005. Information on how Invinity can help to achieve net zero energy can be found at Invinity.com. Thanks, Invinity. Environmental Voices is also sponsored by Penn Future, Pennsylvania's watchdog for clean air, clean water, and clean energy. You can find out more and become a member at PennFuture.org. Today's episode is titled Connecting with Lake Erie. Lake Erie is the fourth largest lake by surface area of the five Great Lakes in North America and the 11th largest globally. The city of Erie is the main access point for Pennsylvanians to the Great Lakes. The 3,200-acre Presque Isle State Park, featuring 13 public beaches, is the most popular of all Pennsylvania's state parks, with almost 4 million people visiting it every year. This almost an island reaches out into Lake Erie, creating both Pennsylvania's only seashore as well as the Presque Isle Bay that the city of Erie sits on. And though I live in Harrisburg now, Erie is my hometown. During this episode, I'll be talking with activists who have been fighting for years to end hazardous manufacturing waste in the air, land, and water in Erie. And I'll also be chatting with Penn Future's own Jenny Tompkins, who runs our efforts in Erie. But first, I'll talk with filmmakers Melissa A. Troutman and John C. Lyons, who are the team behind the two-part documentary Lake Erie, Our Kin, which was just released by WQLN Public Broadcasting in Erie. Melissa wrote it, and she and John co-directed it and also conducted all the interviews for it. Included among her long list of credits, Melissa produced and directed the Rights of Nature documentary, Invisible Hand, with executive producer and Emmy winner Mark Ruffalo. Born in Erie, John is an award-winning filmmaker who's produced a number of feature-length works and shorter documentaries. In 2020, he released the environmental horror film, Unearth about the evils that are released into the world when fracking goes wrong. Melissa, John, welcome to Environmental Voices. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Absolutely. You both have done so many interesting things, and we'll talk about that. I certainly want to dig deeper into Lake Erie Arkin, but I'm really curious. I'm going to start with you, Melissa. You've done so many films that are environmentally related. I mean, do you or did you start out as a filmmaker who got interested in the environment or were you an environmentalist who became a filmmaker or how does that work for you? Um, I actually started off as a newspaper reporter mm -hmm. um, and fracking had come to my small town in northern Pennsylvania. And so that was the beat that I was covering. Um and that work developed into more investigative deep dives into the industry at large. And that developed into documentary filmmaking as a means to reach a larger audience um, with moving pictures because people like movies. <laughs> um, and so that was my trajectory. Uh, so it, I, I came into it through journalism and the, okay. the fracking okay. issue being um, being of particular concern. But sure. I think, you know, long before I was a journalist, I was a person who just felt a kinship with the natural world. And I've felt that ever since I was a child. So I think I think that might have a little bit to do with it, too. Absolutely. I don't know. <laughs> John, I'm going to ask you the same thing. I mean, noting that you have actually created a environmental horror film uh, on Earth, which I think is awesome. Uh, but where did you get started? Which way? Yeah, I have to echo Melissa's con uh, comments about kinship with the natural world. Uh, I I grew up as well in the in the boonies of northwestern Pennsylvania for me, and always had. Uh, that relationship and and respect and uh, that that feeling of of a presence and a comfort um, within nature for me, I always enjoyed being a, a storyteller and entertainer of sorts, and so that led to you know uh, writing 
and producing short narrative films and and feature length films then eventually but i always even in my feature film work i've always made films about things that generally uh get me fired up mm-hmm. um, or something that's you know really personal or something that i feel uh, that i can add my my voice and and perspective to so that's where I came at it from was was from the storytelling side, and then seeing documentaries like uh, Melissa's work at Public Herald with uh, Invisible Hand and yeah. Triple Divide, which were inspirations for our most recent feature film, Unearth. Uh, I got more interested in the environmental side and the challenges that we face in Pennsylvania and and everywhere. So I came into it as a a storyteller and, Mm -hmm. you know, always wanting to tell things because it takes so long, right, to do films. And and so you want to do something that you, you care about. Absolutely. So how did, how did this film come about? So it's, it's part of the Chronicle series for WQLN, uh, the, the public broadcasting station in the Erie area. Um, did they approach the two of you or did you pitch it to them or how did that come about? How did it come about, Melissa? Melissa and I uh, have wanted to work together for a while and we were working on a project around consent. And then I think while we were, Kind of going through that process, Melissa, the timing just kind of worked out with the Chronicle series and they approached us, if I'm correct. Uh, Mike Berlin, executive producer, approached us. Is he correct, Melissa? He is. Yes. um, John and I were chatting about consent um, in the environment in an ecological context Mm -hmm. and um, Mike Berlin executive producer for the Chronicle series came to John and said, Hey, uh, would you be interested in doing an episode? And then John came to me and said, Hey, would you? And, and I said, of course. And he, John said, okay, what do we want to do? <laughs> and so I pitched, I pitched the, and John naturally was like, could we do something on consent? And so after talking about it for a little bit, we realized that the lake is an entity that is, fits into the, the regional context of the show. Mm-hmm. And um, so we reached out and asked, is anybody covering the lake yet? And they're like, no. So, John and wow, I decided... that, that, let me just stop you. That's okay. kind of amazing because the whole Chronicle series is all about sort of the history of Erie and the Erie area. And the fact that at that point, no one was even talking about the lake, which is kind of the, you know, big elephant in the room or lake next door or whatever it is. That's kind of amazing. Yeah, to be clear, oh. no one had taken on the environmental the health of the lake that angle mm. the, the okay. lake is featured in many many in most of the episodes but in okay. some way shape or form but the actual health of the lake was not something and the environmental history was not something that anybody had pitched yet and so okay. john and i did that's great i'm so glad that that is a part of uh the series because that's such an important part of the history yeah, I think it's interesting too that you know most of the Chronicles episodes. Yes, the lake is featured, you know, in the story of a historical figure. It, you know, a lot of the episodes are about people, right? Like most of them are about people. Mm-hmm. But kind of, you know, one of the questions that we asked our interviewees in Lake Erie, our kin, was, you know, do you consider Lake Erie and the Great Lakes a living entity? So it, it is kind of interesting, Melissa, that, you know, we, we are by this giant um, entity, if you will. And, yeah, that there hadn't been, um, you know, a, a, to that point, an idea to make an episode about this, you know, entity that Erie relies so much on, right, to even exist. So I, I hope this isn't too much of a stretch, but you were talking before about consent and wanting to do something on that. And to me, to some extent, I mean, that, that does seem to connect to the lake because really the lake has never given its consent to be polluted. Right. Or am I, is that too much? 
No, Travis, that's, that is, that's awesome. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad that you made that connection because I mean, that's, that, that is in a way where we're going, um, where we were headed in terms of how to think about how we relate, how we are with the natural world. And that is a relationship. And so in a relationship, a healthy relationship is built on consent, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, con and, um, and then an unhealthy relationship is non-consensual. So yeah, it, it, those terms definitely apply to how to, to the lake and any ecosystem and we are part of those ecosystems it's it, it's so interconnected and reciprocal whether we acknowledge that or not and our you know i spent a lot of time talking about how to create this series to shed light on the fact that this is a relationship that we always have whether or not we think of it that way and, and that's where the subtitle comes from our kin right Right. The idea yeah. that I mean, you explain it a bit in in the series, but tell me a little bit more about how you came up with the idea of Lake Erie Arkin. At the time, I mean, I I I think a, the best place to start is to acknowledge that the indigenous people of this land, this is how the, the relationship they have with the natural world is mm -hmm. is familial, and it's um, I don't know that they. Particularly the Haudenosaunee who feature in the series, I haven't heard them use the word kin or kinship specifically, but they use pronouns like mother, father, grandfather, grandmother to refer to um, aspects of the natural world, such as mm -hmm. the sun and the sky. Um, and so it's a familial one for them. Um, and a kinship. I was also at the time that this opportunity came to John and I. I was taking a course in kinship with the natural world. Okay. And um, speaking with uh, folks all over the world on this idea of kinship, which is something that is rooted in all human history. Um, all of our ancestors at one point had a kinship. Uh, the relationship they had with the natural world was a kinship. Um, in the sense that, you know, in all the senses that that, that in all the things, in all the ways that that word um, might be uh, taken. But yeah, so I've been working with Indigenous folks for a few years now. And then the kinship course I was taking, it was just right there on the tip of my tongue on it, really. Um, when John was like, what should we call it? And I said, <laughs> how about Lake Erie Arkin? <laughs> I think it just kind of rolled in the moment. Nice. Yeah, it totally works. And, and you know, what we learn, of course, is, you know, that reciprocal relationship that Melissa's talking about is is so key to really how we should be doing things uh, going forward. Learning from the past, learning the right lessons um, from those that we live with. Did it start out as a one-episode piece and then you just had so much material it turned into two or was that planned it was planned to be two because i think once melissa and i started outlining and talking to mike berlin and everybody at wqln which is mm -hmm. the local uh, pbs affiliate in northwestern pennsylvania i think it became clear that it needed to be more uh than than a one-off 30-minute I'm I'm glad that we decided that for sure because it's, yeah. it's, we definitely fill the episodes with a lot of information. So I, I there's so many things I want to talk about that that came up as I was watching it, but I'm just going to start with the dancers. What's up with the dancers in the water? <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. At least you're laughing. Okay. <laughs> I mean, Melissa, I'll jump in just real quick that, uh, you know, I haven't worked in, in documentary myself. And I think I, I wanted to put out a challenge to us, to to our team, to our very small team, uh, which was not just Melissa and myself, but also um, Jesse and Constantine, who were on our, our small crew. Plus, we had um, a couple PA helpers along the way, too. 
Um, I wanted to put a challenge out to make this documentary feel a little differently and give it some artistic flair and not have it be just talking heads, but something that, you Mm -hmm. know, kind of that it was the watercolor artists and the dancers, um, you know, Melissa can jump in more specifically on the dancers and and what their movements, uh, what we hope they translate to. But yeah, it was, for me, it was to give it a a different kind of a vibe and especially with the watercolor artists, um, you know, showing kind of that relationship and expression through the arts directly through water um, Mm -hmm. was important. Yeah. I I thought, I mean, I thought they were both interesting, but you know, the watercolorist, um, you know, I, I felt like there was more of an immediate obvious connection in the way it was done. Um, uh, but the dancers was certainly much more abstract. I'm like, okay, that's an interesting choice. Melissa. Yes. Um, so that idea came out of, a a, a meetup in Erie where, uh, that dance, the stage dance collective was present mm-hmm. and on John introducing us, um, all I, I kind of, my brain went right to, oh, wow, what if we use dancers to help kind of help the audience, maybe if it translates, make the jump between the, just as, as representation of the, 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 the stakeholders in this relationship where uh, um, two of the dancers um, in the episodes are mm-hmm. standing in the lake. And so they represent the lake <laughs> as a living entity. Yeah. And then the dancers on the shore represent humanity. Um, those of us who, the, those of us who are land dwellers, who, who um, have an impact on the lake. And so those, if, if you watch it again, Travis, you'll, mm-hmm. you might notice that when when we are talking about relationship between humans and the lake, that's yeah. a lot of times when the dancers will be on the screen to, I, to help kind of elevate that or personify that. I certainly noticed that. I did. I did. Cool. Like I said, I thought it was, a, it was a very cool, <laughs> interesting choice, but unexpected. Right. And I'm like, huh. And then we also had uh, fire dancers as well. Jennifer Dennehy and her group, they kind of represent the industrial, mm-hmm. um, side of the equation to swinging their fire yes. axes swords and yes. right. so i i got a couple of very specific questions here or comments and and part of this comes from um uh, as someone who grew up in Erie, that I, I lived in Erie and, you know, until I basically went off to, um, went off to college and, you know, still have many friends and, and relatives there and, you know, great memories of biking around the peninsula and fishing and windsurfing, both on the bay side and the lake side and going boating. And, and, you know, I mean, just, you know, love that whole area. Uh, but there's, and there's some interesting things that I, I learned and saw uh, in it and, or triggered some great memories uh, one was that um, uh, the Lorax, I had no idea that Dr. Seuss's original book of the Lorax referenced Lake Erie to rhyme with Smeary. And then him saying that I hear things are just <laughs> as bad up in Lake Erie. Because yeah, I guess since 72 or something, or, or since the first edition of the book, all the other editions leave out the Lake Erie reference. I had no idea about that. Yeah, and I had forgotten about it until Jenny talked about that in our during our interview mm-hmm. it was wild yeah i actually didn't know about that either myself jenny uh kudos to jenny at pen future for yeah i was i was just astounded by that i'm like wait i gotta look that up so that was very cool um another reference that i did not had not heard about before ever was the uh saturday night live skit with um bill murray drinking the chunky water from lake erie um which was <laughs> hysterical and gross so um, thanks for bringing that, that to light. That one, to yeah. me, honestly, like makes makes me emotional. Uh, when I I saw that, like I I laughed, and then I feel like it's so tragic. Um, that, yeah, I I thought that that hit kind of just right of you know humor that um, hurts. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I I you know remember hearing eerie the mistake mistake by the lake all the time when i was growing up and stuff but uh okay another thing in there that you guys touched on which i thought was extremely cool was the greenpeace ship that visited erie in the 80s because i went for a tour of that 
Uh, I was I, I took the tour of the Greenpeace ship when it was there, and it was um, there, and it was protesting about um, in the lake. I think that's Chlor- right, chlorine. Chlorine, excuse chlorine. me, chlorine, mm-hmm. not chloride. Um, and and what always stuck with me was that the woman who was giving the tour of the Greenpeace ship at the time was chain smoking right the whole time, and as she get to the end <laughs> of her cigarette, she would break her cigarette in half. And put the 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 uh, filter in her pocket, and then toss the rest of it in the water. And so finally, I'm like, <laughs> okay, what are you doing? You know, you're you know, yeah. you're tossing you know part of your cigarette in the water. And she's like, oh, the filters are not biodegradable, but the rest of the cigarette is. So it's okay if I put that in the water because that'll biodegrade. But and then she pulled out her hand and had like I don't know thirty filters in her hand from her pocket and stuff. Oh man. And I wow. like, yeah, so that has stuck with me for a long time. Um, okay, so those are just kind of three things that need Thanks to- for those pro tips, Travis. <laughs> hey, anytime. <laughs> okay, so the most interesting part, and there's a lot of good stuff, and you got a lot of great people on here, specialists talking about different things and different aspects of it, but the most interesting part to me of the documentary came near the end, Melissa. When and and I'm excuse me for not remembering their exact names, but you were at one point talking to the professor who's also Native American about whether or not he had ever been consulted by the representative from Buffalo about that gentleman's plans to help clean up the lake. And then you also talked to the representative from Buffalo about that. And there's you know, there's so much tension there because if I'm characterizing this correctly. You know, the, the guy from Buffalo is basically saying, look, you know, we need to do something immediately to fix this lake. And the other gentleman is basically basically saying, this has been going on a long time. It'd be nice if someone actually asked us what to do. Is It, it was it was pretty tension filled, I thought. Is that a good characterization of it, Melissa? Yeah, I think you did characterize that perfectly. And that part of the film, that tension is an important one to point out because it is it is both i mean it could it's a barrier to progress when it comes to um having a healthy lake and a healthy ecosystem and healthy human communities mm-hmm. but it's also an it's also an opportunity and i really really hope that we can make it an opportunity. Um, one thing, and the professor you're referring to is Dr. Joe Stallman. Um, Thank you. And um, he is, until very recently, he was the director of the Onasegwende Cultural Center for Seneca Nation. Okay. And, you know, one of the things that Joe says is that we've all got to get to the table. And, you know, recognizing you know, we all recognize the sense of urgency that the climate crisis in particular is is uh, presenting. And it's which means it's even more important to make sure that everyone is at the table when we think when we figure out how we're going to collectively move forward um, together in the future. And it's really easy, given the the urgency and all of the emotions that come up with that to it could be really easy to move move very quickly and to skip important steps in order to reach our reach our um, objectives and our agendas that that are very important um but we have to always remember to to take enough time to make sure that we are seeing the whole picture and everyone that has everyone involved has um, a voice at the table, not to mention the fact that, you know, one of the reasons that we interviewed Dr. Stallman is because he is a knowledge keeper about the great law of peace, the Haudenosaunee great law of peace, which has rules um, inside of it for how to live in harmony with the natural world and mm-hmm. each other, you know, and those simple rules are things that are absent from the way things operate today. And they are the key rules for the Haudenosaunee in particular to maintain balance. And if those key rules are not followed, that's when crisis and degradation and crisis occur. So 
you know, one of the things that Dr. Salman mentions at the end is like, you know, what if we all came to the table and looked at those original instructions and said, how might they apply Mm -hmm. today? And that for me is the part of this series where we never say the word consent, but that's where consent comes in. Right. right. Um, And man, I, I hope moving forward that we're able to do some of that. Well, I mean, in speaking of balance, I I thought you presented both of them very in a way that that I felt sympathy towards both of their arguments. Well, good. That's really well, nice. Thanks. To hear. Yeah, I was going to say thanks. Thanks for saying that. I I will say too in the first episode when we were talking to uh, Tim Bruno, who's actually the this will correct me if I'm wrong, but the chief of the Office of the Great Lakes for Pennsylvania's DEP, if I'm correct. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, we we do also ask him, uh, you know, if how inclusive, you know, these these meetings are when they're meeting about, you know, how to handle the Great Lakes and our relationship with them um, going forward. And you know, you do get kind of a, I want to say a similar answer um, where it's like, oh yes, all all people are invited, and yes, of course we we invite all the tribes and First Nation people, and they're able to attend certain meetings on certain dates and things like that. But then he also kind of says, um, you know, they have no uh, power in the conversation, um, but of course yeah. they're they're able to join if, if they want to, you know. So, you know, just piling on to what Melissa said there, you know, if, like we have this great law of peace and it is so simple. Um, and it's like, man, if we could just have a reset and really look yeah. at our relationship with the natural world in in these basic terms, like, and just approach the conversation from that point of view. I'll also say that one of uh, one of the moments that really crushed me personally um, when we were <laughs> in, in production was when we interviewed Joe, which uh, I believe was our our last interview. Melissa, is that right? Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So. So we, you know, had met with all these fantastic activists. And when we met with uh, Assemblyman Burke, uh, you know, I was like feeling very positive and, you know, like often does because it's such a struggle, right? And when you're an activist and, you know, you're always uh, running up against the wall and mm-hmm. uh, hurdles and obstacles and things like that. So, you know, you really feed off of each other's positivity and energy and we all understand that the struggle is so real and that everything that everyone does um on their own islands is is so important and it's just it really crystallized for me when joe you know said hey this isn't the silver bullet this isn't like you know the magic wand that's going to save and fix everything if if we Past this Great Lakes Bill of Rights, um, you know, it just kind of took the air out of mm-hmm. me, um, and then really gave me this new perspective of, yeah, we really are, we all want the same thing, but we are oftentimes. I hope that's clear, um, especially in part two, a little bit that we're kind of talking past each other, yeah, and we really should, um, you know, unite for that common cause. Um, well, part of the better going. part of the issue seems to be uh, when you're speaking of division, just the division between you've got, you know, Ohio, you've got Pennsylvania, you've got New York and Michigan, and then Canada, and just all these different jurisdictions beyond even, uh, you know, what you're looking at in this that seems to just make it so complicated. It's challenging because of the legal framework that we live in, right? It's mm-hmm. uh, different rules and laws, and you know, maybe one country allow or state allows you to pollute more than another one does, and which one wins out in those conversations? Again, I think it comes back to yeah, if we can really like reboot and approach the whole situation from a different perspective, um, you know, I don't want to necessarily say from like a moral perspective, but it does kind of feel like that sometimes that, you know, yes, it it is difficult because we have kind of made it difficult um, Mm -hmm. by having to work through the legal system. Like we have to sue corporations uh, if they pollute too much or whatever. And then are we allowed to sue on 
behalf of, you know, the Great Lakes or Lake Erie. Um, we have to look at it in that term in, in a capitalistic society. It's unfortunate. And that's part of what makes it so difficult. No, that really came through, I thought, especially in the second episode. How long did it, it take you guys to um, to produce the two shows? We filmed of all of July last summer in Erie, which was a great time to be in Erie, I got to say. Sure. Um, and then um, post-production, if we had to shrink it into a maybe solid work timeline, was about three months after that. that. Nice. Nice. Yeah, there's there's a lot in there. What? Let me wrap this up with both of you, and I'll, um, John, I'll start with you first on this one. What's something that that you learned that you didn't expect to come across or come upon while working on this? Uh, honestly, I didn't know. I, I learned a lot. Like honestly, I learned a lot. I did not know about the. I had heard rumors about you can only or you should only eat one. A uh, meal of fish out of uh, Lake Erie per month. Mm-hmm. You know, we like you said, there's there's jokes and comments here and there, but um, you know, when you kind of see it in a in a formal infographic uh, from the state, that that really hit home for me. Uh, so I guess maybe that was just something reinforced, relearned. Um, also. You know, I I know a lot of the people um, that we interviewed in the documentary, but really I learned something about each one of them. I uh, have so much respect for each of them and, you know, so much love for what they do tirelessly, how they work tirelessly. Most of them volunteers on all of our behalfs and on um, our natural world's behalfs that, you know, it's like we, t- we take that for granted, just like we take uh, Lake Erie for granted. So mm-hmm. I, I learned so much right along, uh, hopefully with everyone that, that watches it, honestly, because this isn't my normal lane, my normal world. So I was really soaking it all up like a sponge, whether <laughs> Melissa was interviewing the person or I was interviewing the person, uh, I was learning tons of stuff constantly. I guess the most shocking one for me was, you know, that put it in perspective in terms I think that most people can understand about the fragility of the situation is that, you know, right now um, mm-hmm. we, we can only, we're limited with the amount of fish we can eat. Um, that's pretty scary. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually better than it used to be, which is pretty scary. Melissa, you get the last word. You know, I also learned so much. I grew up two and a half hours from Erie and really had never spent any time there until living there uh, last summer for production. And I really, I, by the end, man, I I am crushing hard on Erie as a city (laughs) and and as a region. It's just such a beautiful place with such amazing people living there who care deeply about their community. And that, that was really awesome to learn, um, about Lake Erie in particular. I just, I learned more about who Lake Erie is and, and that of course goes far beyond Lake Erie and into the Great Lakes watershed shed at large, which, you know, in 15, 20 years is going to be a, a place of climate migration. And I'm, I'm hoping that, all of the good people that are already doing the work in the Great Lakes um, grow in numbers um, because the 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 influx of people and the climate um, impacts to that the Great Lakes watershed, the largest freshwater <laughs> body on planet Earth. Um, mm-hmm. And given all of the the jurisdictions and stakeholders at play, you know, I I I, I really hope to maintain that relationship and um, as looking into the future as we, as we learn how to adjust to that reality. Excellent. Melissa, John, thank you both so much for this conversation uh, on environmental voices. And thank you both for the work that you did in creating Lake Erie Arkin. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. Thanks, Travis. 
For a number of years, a small but mighty group of activists in Erie have called themselves Hold Erie Coke Accountable, which is exactly what they've been doing in their efforts to require the Erie Coke factory, which sat right on the bay, from violating air quality emissions and spilling contaminants into the lake. The two leaders of Hold Erie Coke Accountable are Erie Benedictine sister Pat Lupo and Dr. Mike Campbell, a distinguished professor of biology at Mercyhurst University. Sister Pat, Mike, welcome to Environmental Voices. Uh, Thanks Thanks for for having me. Absolutely. Glad to have you both on. Been looking forward to chatting with you both. Uh, Did a great job in the uh, documentary on Lake Erie, by the way, which uh, we've been talking about during this episode of Environmental Voices, but I I really enjoyed watching. Um, And I know you talked a bit about this uh, during during the the documentary, but I'd like to start with... um, Asking the two of you, you know, how you got started with with creating the the Hold Erie Coke Accountable project. Well, you know, Travis, um, Erie Coke has been around for a long time, and um, there always have been um, issues. But it it seemed like um, it, things were just getting way out of hand, and there were more and more violations. And so, mm-hmm. um, Mike and I were chatting, and um, said, um, why don't you start a group? And I said, why don't you start a group? And we said, <laughs> well, let's do it together. And so that's really how um, Hold Erie Coke um, Accountable began. And the idea from the very beginning was al- was always to hold them accountable um, mm-hmm. so that they would meet the regulations, not to close them down. Although eventually that's what happened. Right, right. And and I mean, really just closed fairly recently. Um on that. And I mean, I remember when I was a kid, you know, growing up in Erie in the seventies and eighties that, you know, I mean, that part of, of the, the, the Bay was just, I mean, really awful. And, you know, people knew there was a lot of pollution going on, but there didn't really seem to be any consequences or people just kind of accepted it. Was, was there something that really changed that just made it worse? You know, I'll add something here. Uh, In addition to sister Pat and I, that, came together to speak about it. We had a, a new member of our community that uh, became involved in uh, some of the, the air quality issues here in Erie. His name is Court Gould. And mm-hmm. I think Court brought sort of a, a fresh perspective, having not lived in Erie, you know, a significant part of his life. Uh, and and he, he had personal uh, reactions to the, the the nasty odors that emanated from Erie Coke that were wafting along the shoreline to where he was living in the city, and I, I want to credit Court too with having given us some incentive to uh, to stand up and do something about it. That's yeah, excellent. Definitely. You know, you know, I, I should probably take a step back and and just for you know the few listeners who may not be familiar with it that the Erie Coke site has nothing to do with Coca-Cola or soda drinks right that it was um, uh it, the coke involved in, <laughs> right i'm sure some people think that but you know that's not the case but uh you know the coke that's involved in in production of iron and and just you know tons of run, i mean and as you said sister pat i mean i believe that there was some manufacturing on that site I read from 1833 and then it became a Coke production facility in 1925 until it closed in 2019. And, and all that time with the Coke production involved a whole bunch of, you know, chemicals and and other toxins and and hazardous substances that were being released, you know, into the air and into the water, you know, during all those years. So it's, you know, certainly it, it was a huge public health threat and environmental justice issue, um, and and certainly, uh, Erie is better from uh, that standpoint now to have it uh, the operation ceased. Um, but it was it was not an easy battle for you and and your supporters. Uh, no, it wasn't. And if you would look at the site uh, from an aerial view, you see a big black spot, um, you know, right along our uh, lakefront. Mm-hmm. But um, we, you know. We're Erie, the core group of Erie, um, of Hold Erie Coke Accountable is, is a small group. You know, we're eight people, but um, we were able to um, initiate citizen action. And uh, that's really what got things moving. Um, 
And we produced little cards. We, um, you know, different ones of our members met with citizen groups so that any time there was a malodor or um, uh, an emission of, um, of pollution from the stacks, um, DEP was called. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a hotline. And so as those calls increased, then DEP began to get more involved. And uh, so it was really citizen action that helped us move things along. And it was, uh, we have formed originally because there was a Title V uh, permit that was due to be um, reissued. And so we were, we were trying to get people involved so that we could get a lot of people at the public meeting to put more pressure on, on folks. And so that was the initial um, beginnings of the group what what year was that when when you first began the group 2017 2018 yeah now that uh erie has closed down bring me up to speed a bit on what's been happening with the the site since because it's certainly not um uh a, a beautiful green space is it no it isn't um it actually closed in december almost right before christmas of 2019 mm-hmm. and finally by may of um 2020 uh, DEP requested assistance for cleanup of the site from EPA. So EPA came in. Um, they actually began work maybe in July to do a site evaluation and uh, a removal action plan. Eventually in, in September, there was a action memorandum. And then they began cleanup later in September. So what they were doing was a cleanup of the um, any hazardous materials that were on site, um, and these were all surface. They weren't doing, you know, they weren't they weren't doing soil samples or mm. water samples or anything. But it was um, uh, just the surface materials, and then um, and that went on about a year or more. Yeah, yeah, at least yeah. a year, year and a half maybe. And then um, it was just in July of last year. Then that DEP began what is considered the second phase of the investigation, hmm. which is really then the hazardous site cleanup program um, moved in. And um, Mike, why don't you tell them a little bit about the process of that program? Sure. Yeah, that that involved a lot of um, sample, uh, you know, sampling of soil and uh, drilling boreholes to. Uh, to check the, the groundwater levels, and they um, <laughs> DEP didn't do all that work themselves. They they hired uh, professional contractors to do mm-hmm. the the site sampling and the all of the chemical testing. And they I did a really uh, thorough job of testing all of the possible contaminants that you know could have likely been released there over the years and all over the place. You know, they were sampling in areas where there were known uh, storage and probably spills of byproducts, which are, are not a very good thing yeah. on the site. And uh, they had, there had been problems with their water uh, pretreatment. Uh, the, the wastewater that was generated on the site had been sent to the Erie Wastewater Treatment Plant. And what actually caused them to shut down at the end was uh, a failure in their ability to address their wastewater issues. Mm. And there was a big spill. So the testing kind of covered all of the areas where there were known occurrences of spills. And and now we have in our hands the, the reports, which indicate how serious and high concentrations of, of uh, at least a dozen different chemicals that uh, are now going to need to be addressed on the site before anything else can happen there. Sure. I mean, I mean, it's almost two centuries of manufacturing that were occurring on that site. So, you know, I, not surprised to hear of everything that was found and, and how awful it is. But Mike, what's, I mean, what do you see as, you know, optimistically the future of that site? Um, or it, can it you be optimistic? On- yeah, it, it depends on what they do to stabilize the, uh, the the contaminants that are at the surface and how they address the the contaminants that are underneath the surface that are in the groundwater and likely, you know, making their way out into Lake Erie nearby. Mm-hmm. And that includes some uh, 
chemicals like benzene and naphthalene that uh, organic chemicals that can cause toxicity to aquatic life and harm people if people were to come in contact with it. So I honestly don't know that we can even fantasize what what's going to be possible mm. on that site until the next step in the process, which is when DEP will be um, developing a kind of a remediation plan for, for moving forward and continued monitoring. Now, of course, I mean, the plant, as we have said, shut down in 2019 at the end there, but the people that owned Erie Coke, are they being held accountable now for this testing and then what eventually could be, you know, a really extensive cleanup operation? Um, we've seen no accountability from Erie Coke on uh, anything. Um, you know, they they walked out on their workers, they walked out on the community, and now the citizens are paying for the cleanup. Mm-hmm. Uh, DEP does have, um, I don't know, I think a million or $2 million lien on the property, but um, there really has been no accountability, at least from my perspective, from Erie Coke. Yeah, that's that's what yeah. I was afraid of. Yeah, Mike, anything you wanted to add to that? Uh, no, I mean there are there have been criminal charges filed against uh, one of the plant supervisors who was there in the last several years, but uh, the owner of the company who uh, one would suspect, you know, might have some <laughs> responsibility too has mm-hmm. has not uh, not been held accountable at all. So is is your group, Hold Erie Coke, accountable? You're still active, correct? I mean, I, I see that you've got a Facebook page and a website. Are you still um, actively pursuing this? Um, we are. We um, During the EPA cleanup, we met about every three or four months with mm-hmm. the um, site coordinators just to see what was going on and where we were in the process. And uh, we'll be doing the same thing with um, DEP now that the report has come out. Um, uh, Mike has actually done some back and forth via email, but we're going to ask the DEP to come into a meeting so we can talk about more about, you know, what's happening on site. Throughout the process, we've tried to talk to, um, you know, community leaders. Uh, we want to try to get uh, more stakeholders involved. Sure. Um, I think one of the biggest, you know, concerns uh, for me, kind of the in- inability of leaders and citizens um, to calculate the environmental costs and benefits, you know, of their actions. I think, you know, too often we think in just in terms of economic impacts and not in terms of, you know, lifelong environmental impacts and what it's doing for future generations in terms of, of our actions today. Mm-hmm. I think there's just that lack of understanding and actions to address um, this and you know the bigger problem of climate crisis. Absolutely, Mike. Anything you want to add uh, to that as we wrap things up with this environmental voices interview? Uh, just to uh, piggyback on what Sister Pat said, I, I suspect that uh, that some of the individual persons and families that might have been harmed by you know their long term exposure to. Uh, the pollutants that were coming from Erie Coke may be gone at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. I know in the neighborhood nearby that would have been downwind of, of some of the worst emissions there, you know, there's been people died in the neighborhood and have, <laughs> you know, moved out to other locations. And I, I think uh, that's one of the unfortunate things about action being taken, you know, too many years following the, yeah. the time when the, the damage occurred is that people that may have been harmed are, are gone now. And that that is a little bit sad. But uh, but I'm optimistic that, you know, with what um, criminal proceedings are taking place, that there'll, there'll at least be some justice served in this. Well, it's, it's certainly, uh, you know, it's a tragic history and it's one that's not over yet. Um, obviously, there's right. still a lot to play out, but uh, uh, Please know, I mean, how much the efforts of the two of you and uh, and your organization, the work that you've done to you know accelerate at least uh, this this movement towards some justice, uh, how much that is appreciated. Thank you both so very much. 
Well, thank, thank you. you for interviewing us. Penn Future is a statewide environmental advocacy organization with offices in Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Harrisburg, and the Poconos. Since 2020, we've also been in Erie. Jenny Tompkins is Penn Future's campaign manager for clean water advocacy in the Lake Erie watershed. Jenny, welcome to Environmental Voices. Thanks for having me, Travis. I'm happy to be on. Absolutely. So let's start off by just briefly explaining what your role at Penn Future is, uh, specifically in Erie. Yeah, thanks. I am the campaign manager for clean water advocacy in the Lake Erie watershed. And I lead the Our Water, Our Future campaign for protecting the Pennsylvania Lake Erie watershed, which is a collaborative campaign with about a dozen other partners in Erie. Mm -hmm. And we laid out eight threats to water quality and a number of policy and community-based strategies to try to mitigate those threats. So it gives me two specific questions. One, the water you're talking about in Lake Erie watershed, it includes Lake Erie, but it's not just Lake Erie, right? Correct. So a watershed or a basin, which is an even easier way to think about it, is an area of land where all of the water precipitation hits the ground and ultimately runs off into a, into a major water body. So the Lake Erie watershed is about the northern half of Erie County and the northwest corner of Crawford County in northwest PA. Mm -hmm. And there are several dozen tributary streams that actually run into to Lake Erie that we're concerned about as well. Okay. So your work... Just to be clear, you're not out there um, scooping up trash from the riverbank. You're, it's more kind of behind the scenes, right, and getting people activated and motivated to care about things, and, and it crosses over a bit into policy? Absolutely. So while I'm thankful for the partners and organizations in the area that are leading those cleanups and, and doing a lot of that community-based work, absolutely, we are a policy advocacy organization. So a good example of a recommendation that would be in our campaign that I worked on a lot last year was the creation of a City of Erie Environmental Advisory Council, which mm -hmm. is a framework that the, that the state actually allowed municipalities to utilize dating back to the mid-70s. Erie became the 161st municipality to have what we call an EAC. And Penn Future's work was in working with partners in the community to educate about this idea and actually draft an ordinance that was ultimately passed by city council. It seems like a pretty big deal. What is that going to mean when the environmental uh, council actually is activated? Yeah. So the good news is that the, they're actually seeking applications right now for the mm -hmm. EAC at the city and residents who have expertise in environmental matters can apply to serve. There'll be seven seats, but what, what's so important about EACs is their advisory given the name and they provide insights and do research on behalf of elected officials and staff to, to inform a lot around the environment. EACs okay. and the Commonwealth have focused on climate action planning, renewable energy, stormwater infrastructure, waste and recycling. It could go on and on and on, but they, they, do, they do a lot of work at the local level on a volunteer basis. And so they're advising to city county council, to the mayor's office. Is that correct? Yeah, to city council, the mayor, and hopefully some critical staff. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, we have a sustainability coordinator at the city, a really active public works department with environmental projects, a parks department. All of those folks could be interfacing with the EAC. Excellent. So, hey, tell me about your involvement in the documentary uh, that that we've been talking about on this episode of Environmental Voices. Yeah, it was a it was a really great privilege to be interviewed. As, as part of the process for the documentary, I was actually interviewed last summer on the Bayfront, right in mm -hmm. front of Bicentennial Tower, which was great. And it gave me a, a great opportunity to be among other advocates that are working to protect Lake Erie. I'm really happy that we had representation from the western, central, and eastern basins, so not just the central basin where we are. I'm really glad to have been part of the project. Very cool stuff. Yeah, it's just, it's such a great, great documentary. And there's a um, special showing of it coming up, right? Yeah, we're really happy that a first community screening event is happening on Saturday, June 3rd at the Tom Ridge Environmental Center in their big green screen theater. 
I have a networking hour at five and then a screening and discussion starting at 6 p.m. Nice. That'll be great. And of course, people can also watch it online as well through the WQLN website. And we'll give that uh, information a little bit later again. Uh, but, uh, you know, really enjoyed uh, learning more about the documentary and and how it was put together. And of course, all the people involved in it. You know, what are what sort of feedback are you hearing about it? I'm hearing that people are have really resonated with it, given that it's all about our connection to Lake Erie and our history with Lake Erie. I think all Erieites can understand that connection and it's been so central to their lives and our regional identity. I'm also hearing a lot of great things about the integration of indigenous voices mm-hmm. in, in this documentary because of our history for Erie County in particular, we've been cut off from a lot of those uh, indigenous connections and we don't have the traditional ecological knowledge that a lot of other places on the Great Lakes are taking right. advantage of. And so I'm really proud to be part of a, a piece that's it's centering those voices and recognizing the, the thousands of years of human connection to Lake Erie. And how can other people get involved? By asking difficult questions, by making sure that voices that aren't represented at tables are being encouraged to participate, by asking local communities what's important to them. I think that's that Lake Erie, our kin, the two episodes are a great starting point for helping people reflect on their relationship with the lake. And we may realize that people in our community have no connection to Lake Erie because of access barriers or other inequities that have prevented them from doing so. One example of this is there's a a large proportion of people in the city of Erie that don't own vehicles, Mm -hmm. but getting to Presque Isle Bay with the exception of, luckily, the local uh, Erie Metropolitan Transit Authority does provide some free bus rides to the peninsula, but that's still a great barrier for people. So I think just stepping back and critically asking who isn't in the space, who needs to be here, what perspective is missing, but also People can have different relationships to Lake Erie, and there, there may be quite a bit we need to do to improve and repair some of the damage that's been done. Denny, you're doing great work up there in Erie, and I appreciate it. I also want to let people know that uh, they can support the work that you're doing by participating in Erie Gives Day, which is coming up in August. And uh, Penn Future is again participating in that day-long day of giving to support work being done to benefit uh, Erie and the surrounding area. Uh, Great stuff. Jenny, thanks so much for being on Environmental Voices. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And that does it for this Connecting with Lake Erie episode of Environmental Voices, the Penn Future Podcast. Thanks again to our guests, filmmakers Melissa Troutman and John Lyons, activists Sister Pat Lupo and Dr. Mike Campbell, and Penn Futures' Jenny Tompkins. If you would like to watch the two-part documentary, Lake Erie, Our Kin, you can find it on the website for WQLN, Erie's public broadcasting station. Just go to WQLN.org and click on Watch and then the Chronicles series. You'll find them there. There's also a special screening and discussion of the documentary that will take place on June 3rd at the Tom Ridge Environmental Center in Erie from 5 to 8 p.m. that is free. You'll be able to meet the filmmakers and others involved with the documentary. We've got more information available on the Penn Future website, or you can go to eventbrite.com and search for Lake Erie R. Kim. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe and leave behind a review of Environmental Voices, the Penn Future podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please let us know what you'd like to hear on future episodes. And thanks again to our sponsor, Invinity, designing and installing solar power systems for homes and businesses in central and western PA since 2005. Information on how Invinity can help to achieve net zero energy can be found at Invinity.com. Environmental Voices is also sponsored by Penn Future, Pennsylvania's watchdog for clean air, clean water, and clean energy. You can find out more and become a member at penfuture.org. And if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, please let us know. Today's show was produced by Jenny Tompkins, Michael Morazar, and me, Travis DiNicola. It was also written by me, and I've been your host and audio engineer. Our executive producer is Matt Stepp. Our music is thanks to pixabay.com. Thank you for listening to Environmental Voices, the Penn Future Podcast.